0: If this is you I'm not trying to put you down uh, but uh, if you've walked into someone's home and they have one of those family adjective collages hanging from their wall you know the Thompson's are you know warm hugs and gooey cookies and honest conversation you know what I'm talking about you can buy them at like Etsy or Pinterest some nods some yes so I am the cynic in me is like who gets to choose your adjectives Was that you, or did you have someone like a family member or like a neighbor validate that you're like that? Um, Anyways, uh, you know, families put those things up because they want to say things about themselves. This is what we're like. If you come into our home, and if you interact with us, if you're in a relationship with us, here's what you're going to experience. Here's what we uh, aspire to be. Um, And so when it comes to like God's people, we would say those same things, whether or not we live it 100% or not, probably not 100% that there's things that are true of us as like God's people. We do these things. We're this way towards one another. And worship hits at how it is that we are towards each other and how it is that we uh, interact with the world, again, the family, and then God. I would say this, this is our big idea this morning. We're going to take a look at worship is the genesis of who we are and the path to receiving an abundant life. Worship is the genesis of who we are and the path to receiving abundant The abundant life of God. We're going to be uh, reading from Psalm 122, which is a psalm of David. uh, And he kind of outlines for us what worship is. And so let's read together. David writes I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. As was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. And that your is the people of God's good. So this uh, psalm that we just read is broken up into three different stanzas. Each stanza kind of highlights or focuses in on an aspect of worship, and we're going to kind of break it down here together. Uh, so the very first stanza kind of really hits at that the God's people are people who go and worship. They're people who go, and they show up and are present together in worship of God who they follow, who they lift up who they're looking to, the psalmist uh, is excited to be in God's presence. Uh, he says, you know, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, worship is like the most basic, average thing that someone who loves God or is following God does. Uh, what we do here on Sunday morning is actually really not all that special, that more people attend worship services on a Sunday morning than attend football games, you know, in our country. More people are present in a congregation like this, and not just here in America, but globally, There are hundreds of millions of Christ followers who gather together on Sunday mornings to sing, to read the word, to take sacrament. What we are doing is not that special. It's average. It's common. Because it's the genesis, the starting point of our spiritual life, is to behold God, to take a look at him. And yet, while it is average, it is also the most glorious thing. Because God, the person of God, who he is, is a thing that stimulates, motivates, provides spark to our spiritual lives in so many different ways. Bradhouse says this: He says, "The motivation that will sustain, like the church community, such a community, is not the expectation to glorify God. It is the glory of God itself. You can't just tell people that they should glorify God. We need to see the beauty, the splendor and the magnificence of our God. It is simultaneously terrifying and motivating. When we see God clearly, we understand that there is nothing more important than worshiping him and lifting him up in name. Beholding God is what we get to do on a Sunday morning. I don't know if that goes through your mind or your heart as you consider coming here this morning. I know if you're like me in any sort of way, sometimes it's just enough effort just to get the kids out of the door and here dress decently. But when we come here on Sunday mornings, we get to behold God, we get to look at who he is, and he is a God who is both terrifying and motivating. I mean, if you've had an encounter with God and you've experienced his love before, you know what it feels like to to come to grips with that reality that there's a divine God who has always existed, is eternal, and is over and outside of our entire universe, and yet somehow in the billions of people, he knows you. Personally, every hair on your head, every thought that's in your mind and in your heart, he knows you personally and loves you. That's a motivating, that's a beautiful thought. But it's terrifying too because God is also claimed in the scriptures as being a jealous, wrathful God. When we think of jealousy, we only think of jealousy or anger in a human sense, not in a divine sense. But God is those things as well that God could somehow both look at an individual and declare they're worthy of judgment because of what they have done, and yet at the same time be the same God who would go to the cross to pave a way for them to be back in a love relationship with him. This is the God that we behold. We behold mysteries about uh, uh, an unlimited, infinite God. The fact that God is Trinitarian. Last week, we baptized six people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we're saying is that there is three persons within this God that is uh, engaged in the salvation story of you and me, and each of them has a role that they play. They are distinct, and yet they're one God of the same essence, of the same being. Christians have for eternities tried to grab a hold of or grasp in their mind what does it mean that God is Trinitarian, and we try to come up with illustrations like, well, maybe the Trinity means that God's like water, you know, in three forms, like ice and liquid and gas. But any illustration human beings have tried to come up with in order to explain certain things about God, we just kind of fall into heresy because it's not true. We, we struggle to capture the person and being of God, and that should be an incredible thing. We don't come here just to, to lift up God's name or behold a God who is easy to figure out. He is not. And at times, he's terrifying, and we doubt, and we struggle. And at times, he is more beautiful than looking at the Grand Canyon. Worship is the genesis, the motivation of our spiritual life. It is average, and yet it is glorious. Well, the second stanza, the psalmist begins to talk about the form of worship. And what he really is saying is that worship gives you a framework for your life. Worship gives you and me a framework for our life, the path that we actually travel in order to see and behold this God. The very first verse, he talks about Jerusalem. He says it's built uh, as a city that is bound firmly together. Now, this is pre Christ, when God's people worship God in the temple that was located in a city, you know, in a country, on a place, in a space. But once Christ came, and he ascended to heaven and then gave us the Holy Spirit. Worship now is all over. We can worship wherever the Spirit of God moves and is. And so the psalmist is working, uh, uh, speaking to that reality. But what he's saying is that Jerusalem was built specifically. The temple was built specifically. God gave specific instructions to his people on how the temple should be constructed. The metals that it was supposed to be used. The symbols that were, that were uh, crafted onto the walls and the furnishings the way that the structure was and the layout and the design of it, all was so that human beings would come and would walk and enter into the city and then into the temple, and every step that they took and everything that they did, they would be reminded of the story that they are playing out and engaged in when it comes to the divine God. Pagan worship at the time was about veneration. You come, you check off the boxes, then God is pleased with you and will favor you, will uh, shower his favor upon you, and then you're good to go. But God actually invited his people into a story. And that form was so that they would walk through that story. Sacrifice. The sacrifice wasn't about slaughtering an animal in order to get appeasement. The slaughtering of an animal was in order for them to remind themselves of their sinful condition. And it was to remind themselves that God, every, every time that they gather in his presence, always provided a way for them to be there with him. The form matters. We as Americans, we don't like form. Form feels rote. It feels predictable. It feels mundane. But it's only mundane if we make it mundane in our hearts. Form actually is our way of interacting and being in relationship with God. Our, our girls, if you're parents, you know that the bedtime routine can drive you crazy sometimes, or every night. So our girls actually have constructed an elaborate sort of ritual that they have me and my wife Allie walk through every single night before we can actually put them to bed and turn off the light and then like be done with them for the evening. And so typically, typically, what I mean is every single day, it goes like this, around 8, 8.30 or something like that, you send the kids up to bed, go brush your teeth. And so you say, go brush your teeth. And then as parents, you delay a little bit, and then you head upstairs, and, you know, you don't find them brushing their teeth. They're horsing around the hallway every time. Like, brush your teeth. I brush your teeth and get in your room. And so you delay a little longer. They finally brush their teeth, and they get in the room, and you're like, you know, get in your room and get in bed. And so a few minutes later, you walk into the room, and they're not in bed. They've gotten toys out. They've gotten things out. They're, they're playing and making a mess of their room or whatever. You're like, get... In bed, <laughs> so they finally get in bed, and they're not ready to be covered up because they've got to plump and fluff all their pillows and all their stuffed animals are supposed to be laid out in a specific. Why the stuffed animals get shifted every day, I don't get it. But then you've got to re-line them up in the exact order and all that kind of stuff, and then they lay there and they want you to like tuck them in with the blanket, turn the right direction, and then you layer the blankets in like a certain in a certain order. All right, so you got to order them in a certain way, and so finally they're like tucked in. And then we've got twins, and so Allie's on one bed, I'm at the other, and then there's hugs and kisses and prayers for that girl, and then you flip-flop, you go to the other child, and my wife comes to this child, and hugs and kisses and prayers, and then as we're leaving, every single night, as we are leaving, one of the girls says, you didn't pray for me. You didn't hug me. You didn't kiss me. And it's at that point that you want to claw your face off, because you're like, I literally just did all the things that you asked me to do. And so you could fight with them and end the evening badly, but you don't. You go back and do more hugs and kisses and prayers for both of them. And now, finally, as you're leaving, you go turn off the light. You say the same thing you say every single night. Good night. See you in the morning. Love you. Well, as a parent, It can be frustrating and it can test your patience. But really, what are our girls doing? They are trying to soak up every ounce of their parents' affection and love and touching and hugging and kissing and time with us that they can before they go to bed because they want more. And when we go through the forms of worship, when we enter into this space on a Sunday morning, it is an opportunity for us to slow down our busy lives, slow down our hearts and our minds that we might be able to see and hear and engage with the living God that loves us. The form matters. It instructs us who we are. David here says, when we come into the presence of God, we give thanks. And it's a command to give thanks. It's not a feeling. We don't come here because we feel like it. We come here because we need it. We need his presence. And secondly, we need to acknowledge his place in our life and everything good that he's given us. So worship gives you and me a working framework for our life. Well, now let's turn to the third stanza, where David kind of highlights for us that worship is an invitation to secure an abundant life. We come to God because we want a good life. Yes, we come to him that we might glorify him, but we also are hoping that he would give us what he promises us, which he promises the abundant life. Jesus said, I come that I might give you an abundant life. That's a promise. And so David says... Very first sentence here in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalu, shalom, Jerusalem. It all connects together, that string, as a pathway of how it is that we secure the abundant, prosperous life of God. Shalom is, uh, shalom is the uh, Hebrew word for peace. And it's not like our Hebrew word for peace. We don't have an English equivalent. Like when we think of like peace, we think of like without conflict. As long as you and me don't have conflict, we're at peace with each other. As long as our country isn't at war with that country, we're at peace with them. But peace is much, much more than without conflict. It is actually wholeness and restoration and healing and satisfaction. And I'm describing it, but that's not completely it, but we're heading down the right direction. Shalom is it's eternal life. It's everything that we desire. So God desires to give us shalom, peace. He also desires to give us security. May they be secure who love you, the psalmist says. Secure is the word shalva. It means prosperity. But again, not prosperity in the way you and I think of it, which is owning our own private island, or that Audi we've been eyeing. That's not prosperity, not the way the psalmist means. Prosperity is that that sense or that experience that we have of being completely at home, soul rest. You know what it's like to be at home? You can let your hair, out, hair down. You can be who you are. You can be accepted for all of your gifts and the, the wonderful things about yourself and all of your flaws, and you're able to just be you. And what God says is that when we come into his presence and we're with his people, that in an eternal sense, we ought to, and he wants to give us that sense of being home, being ourselves with one another in his presence. In the day of Jesus... I mean, God's people, Israel, were trying to be faithful to God, and there was multiple factions of, in people's opinions of what that looked like. You know, I'm not going to explain all of them, but there's really four main ones, and one was sort of, you know, well, if we're going to have a good life, we need to make sure that we have a good life as God's people, but we also got to figure out what does that mean as we are under Roman control, and we need to probably also do things in order to be accepted and find the peace and prosperity of Rome at the same time, and they were called the Sadducees. You hear about them talked about a little bit in the scriptures, but honestly, Jesus doesn't encounter them much because they were so off of Jesus's radar and they had so sort of mingled Jewish customs with uh, trying to be acceptable to Rome that they really didn't have a whole lot to do with following Jesus. There's other factions. The guys are like, man, you've got to like really live it Get your morality straight. There's other people that are like, no, we need to like declare war against Rome. And there's other people like, no, we need to just kind of flee and isolate ourselves and live in the mountains. And all four live those things out. But the Sadducees made concessions with Rome, they made a compromise. Let's not be so serious about our followership of Jesus that, that we only follow that. Let's not miss out on the good things of Rome let's not miss out on the fact that they're the ones really in charge. They have the real power. They have the real ability to give us abundance here in this life, right here and now. And so what they attempted to do was they attempted to mix faithful practice with God, which wasn't really faithful, in with trying to be acceptable and accommodating to the world. It wasn't true in genuine worship. Because they were trying to mix both of them together and it all had to do it all, all had to do with where they thought peace and prosperity really came from. Did peace and prosperity really come from God? Or was it God and Rome? Well, that's our challenge today. We come here on Sunday, and we can say, Yes, the Lord gives us peace and prosperity, but the under the other one hundred and sixty-seven hours of our week, we are bombarded with opportunities and ideologies and things at our disposal in the world which tells peace and prosperity, yes, you can have your God, but this too. Don't overlook this, because this will really give you the good life. If you just pay attention to like every movement that pops up, whether it's the environmental green movement, or the Me Too movement, or the Black Lives Matter movement, or the Blue Lives Matter movement, uh, I'm not saying anything about anything positive or negative about them. I'm just saying, pay attention. Each of them is offering you or a group of people a pathway to peace and prosperity. If we would just do this, if we would secure power this way, if we would just have these things, then life would be good. When Steve Jobs invented Apple, he didn't just invent a company. He didn't just invent technology to sell to people and consumerism. He actually had a whole set of humanistic ideologies that technology was a real way to the peaceful and prosperous life. He understood the story in the Bible, and he said that's not the way. God does not have peace and prosperity, but technology can deliver those things to us. Let us build technology in our lives around technology. And yeah, there's good things. I'm closer to the person halfway around the world than I was a couple decades ago. But somehow I'm further apart than the person who's in front of my face. Technology delivers some of it, but it's not the gospel. It's not the abundant life God promises. As we engage in uh, this, the political uh, candidacy that's going to be in in front of us, like on blast. I actually saw this really funny quote about um, Mike Blomberg, and someone had a tuba on their face, and it was like, "Mike Bloomberg's like advertisements coming at you." But you know, over like the next like several months. Every single candidate, man or woman, is going to offer us their vision of peace and prosperity in this lifetime, right here and now. And we can be so easily deceived into thinking that they have something to offer the church, and they have something to offer us. This is no joke. I had a conversation with two followers of Jesus within a couple weeks of one another on polar opposite sides of of Donald Trump. And again, I'm not saying either the positive or negative about Donald Trump. I'm just saying, in our hearts, it is a dangerous place when we begin to believe that a person has the power to give us the peace and prosperity that God promises us. One person said to me, and I quote, we need to get Donald Trump elected because he's going to protect the church. I'm pretty sure God is the one responsible for protecting the church. I'm pretty sure Jesus is the real true shepherd. No person. And then a month later, I heard someone else, as I was talking to another Christ follower, say, I mean, we need to get Donald Trump out of the office. He's going to hurt the church. He's giving us a bad name. And all he said is, that's not true. He doesn't have that much power. God protects his church. God is the one who we follow. And it is an insidious, an insidious thing when we allow ideas and other promises of where peace and prosperity is found we begin to believe other things and this goes in all different directions My wife and I wrestle with it when it comes to like our own children. We can believe certain things We need to do certain things buy into to this or get that in order to make sure that they have the life that they're they're meant to have So just this past week Allie and I uh, well not Allie and I Allie lost one of her diamonds on a ring So it was true. It was an accident But Allie, like, she has, like, three diamonds on her engagement ring. And one of the smaller diamonds fell out. And so diamonds are not cheap to buy. Um, And so we are going around different jewelers, and we're looking at, you know, how much is it going to cost to get another real diamond put in this setting? And then we found out that there's fabricated diamonds, that there's man-made, laboratory-made diamonds. And one of the jewelers was telling us, hey, You can get this fabricated diamond, and it's a third of the cost of a real diamond. And you can't even tell the difference. It looks the same. In fact, geologists can't even tell the difference between this man-made diamond and that man-made diamond. And yet, in our heart, it's sort of like, well, they might look the same, but it's not the same. It's not authentically the same thing. And for us, when it comes to actually going after God— When we come in front of him, we are confronted with all the different ways that we are like, yes, God has a good life, but have also sort of mixed in with the essential oils or this new car or this thing that I need to have, and all of a sudden our worship becomes inauthentic. There's a true process where we actually come before the Lord, and we ask for him to do a refining work in our heart that we might truly, truly follow him. That true worship is this process of sacred contemplation and responsive peacemaking. That what the psalmist is saying to us is that when we come before the Lord, we're bringing our whole self, and we're saying, "God, search our hearts. Would you know us? If there's anything that is inauthentic within me, would you make it known that I might repent and move away of that thing? Have I bought into, or do I believe that there's another savior of my life?" Do I believe that someone else will give me the peace and prosperity I long for in life other than you? Because you say it's only you, and would it be only you? Sacred contemplation is me hearing his word, seeing who he is, and then allowing that light to shine on me and expose me, but then also entering into that sacred journey and story of knowing that it's also God who sets things right in my heart through Jesus. But then the second part of that is that there's a response of peacemaking. As God grows peace in our heart, as we pray to him only for the abundant life that he promises us, we then, out of that, extend the abundant life to one another. We're peacemakers with one another. As he ends the psalm, for your sake, Lord, I'll I'll seek the church's good. And we know if we're authentically going to him, if we're peacemakers with one another. If I am living in such a way to... Do good to you. I see that you have a need, and I'll give to that need. If I'm extending this abundant life I experience with God to you, then in some sense I have a sense that the true gospel is working itself in my heart. But if I have bitterness and anger against you, and I hold that in, I hold my bitterness against you and say it's no big deal, well then I'm not really trusting God to work the abundant life in me. When I withhold forgiveness from you, that I'm not allowing the gospel to truly work in my heart. When I know that I've offended you and I won't humble myself and confess that to you, I know that the true gospel, the true abundant life is not working itself in me. And if I see that you have a need and I turn my eye away from you, then the true gospel is not at work in my heart. We know that we are going to the Lord and experiences of abundant life, when we see it manifest amongst one another amongst this friend, or this family, as we are peacemakers with one another, and we're actively a part of that. Worship is no small thing, and this journey that God has invited us into is no small thing. We get to, every Sunday, be reminded of the story that God has invited us into. It is a genesis, us being able to encounter God for who he is, see him for who he is, come alongside of each other in that process and journey. Us receiving from God and God alone that abundant life and then being able to have the privilege of extending it to one another. And in this way, way, the world will know if we are true, genuine diamonds or if we are just fabricated man-made ones. Let me pray for us to end. Heavenly Father, um, my heart just feels heavy because even opening your scriptures and asking that question of myself, do I have a hope other than you? Lord, the answer is yes. That there's so many different ways that I've given my hope and my life and my trust to different places in this world where God, I have attempted to marry together a a faithful life with you with a uh, compromising with the culture and the things of the culture around us. Lord, we need your help as you sift through our heart to be able to see you for who you really are. God, we need your abundant grace and mercy applied to us in these places where we've fallen short. We need to be reminded of your love and of Jesus who paid for it all. Lord, would you draw us in close to you that we could experience affection, the affection and the life you desire to give us. Amen.